Welcome to the Hands in Motion podcast, brought to you by the American Society of Hand Therapists. Here we will discuss all things upper extremity therapy, from assessment to treatment, the latest research, the patient experience, and other topics related to the field of upper extremity rehab. Learn more and subscribe today at ASHT.org. Hi, I'm Kara Smith. And I'm Stephanie Strauss. Welcome to another episode of Hands in Motion. Today, we have an open discussion with our guests on pain-guided healing and pain-guided therapy, how to use the pencil test and apply that to clinical practice, the variety of ways to use a relative motion orthosis for our patients, and we'll also touch on incorporating true active flexion following flexor tendon repairs versus place and hold. We are so honored to have today our guest, Dr. Don Lalonde. Dr. Lalonde is a professor of surgery at Dalhousie University in St. John, New Brunswick, Canada, and the current ASSH Council Outreach and International Relations Director. He has served as the president of the Canadian Society for Surgery of the Hand, past chairman of the American Board of Plastic Surgery, past president of the American Association for Hand Surgery, the past president of the Canadian Society of Plastic Surgeons, and is an honorary member of the American Society of Hand Therapy. Dr. Lalonde continues to share his expertise around the world and has been an invited speaker to more than 200 international presentations and an invited professor to 35 different locations in Canada and the U.S. He has more than 100 peer-reviewed journal publications and 10 book chapters. He's been the past speaker at ASHT's annual meeting. And his most recent publication, Wide Awake Hand Surgery, a Surgeon and Therapist Guide to Wide Awake Local Anesthesia, No Tourniquet Surgical Technique, or the Wallant. Welcome, Dr. Lalonde. Thank you so much for having me, and I'm so glad that I'm not passed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we don't need that, right? <laughs> not yet. <laughs> so... Just to start off our discussion, I know I've been reading a couple of your articles and I was really intrigued by your definition or your concept of pain-guided healing and pain-guided therapy. So can you expand a little bit on that for us? Yeah, I'd love to. It's a favorite topic of mine. In North America, particularly, doctors hand out way too many pain medicines. And we really have to go back to who we are as human beings. And we didn't spend 2 billion years evolving pain because it's bad for us. It's nature's only way for our bodies to say to us after an injury or an operation, which is a kind of an injury, our bodies say, hey, would you quit that? I'm trying to heal in here and you're screwing it up. Stop that. And that's a little voice in your head you want to listen to, but you can't hear it with Advil or Tylenol in your ears, and especially not with narcotics in your ears, which I think only are extremely rarely indicated in hand surgery, period. This is an American disease, North American disease, the whole business of narcotics. The rest of the planet doesn't do this. So we really need to listen to that pain voice in our head. And if we do, so many things get better so much faster. Like for example, after I do any operation or during the time that I do any operation, I say to every patient, doesn't matter whether it's a carpal tunnel or a broken bone or whatever it is I'm operating on them for. I say, what do you normally take for pain? Advil, Tylenol, nothing. And most of them say Advil or Tylenol. And I say, you know, that's all you're going to need after this operation. You're not going to need any more than that. 
And if it's really sore, you can take up to 800 of Advil. And half an hour later, if it's still sore, you can take up to a gram of Tylenol. And you're not going to need any more than that if you follow the rules. And then I give them the rules. And the most important rule after any hand operation is to keep your hand elevated and immobilized for at least a day or two until you're totally off painkillers and you know what hurts because you don't know what hurts when you're on that stuff. So I say, look, in four or five hours, the sting of the cut's going to be gone. And then you're going to get into the pain of, gee, doctor, now it only hurts when I put my hand down or when I do stuff. So tomorrow, or certainly by the next day, if your hand is up quiet, treat it like a sleeping baby. Don't disturb it. By tomorrow or the next day, the sting of the cut's going to be gone. And you're going to be into the pain of, gee, doctor, now it only hurts when I put my hand down or when I do stuff. So that's when you quit taking the painkillers and listen to your body. And don't put your hand down until it doesn't hurt to do it. Don't do stuff till it doesn't hurt to do it. It's called pain-guided healing. It's also called common sense. Don't do what hurts. <laughs> And I also tell them, look, you can't be walking around with your hand dangling down like this while it's still numb from the local anesthesia or while you're on painkillers. Because if you walk around with your hand dangling down and do that kind of stuff, it's going to bleed in there. What happens if it bleeds in there? That turns to a clot. It takes your body weeks to get rid of a clot. So it's going to take you a lot longer to get better. So you want it up and quiet and let it stop bleeding in there. Let the swelling come down, come off all painkillers, and then listen to your body. I think one area where we're particularly bad about this is after tenolysis. After tenolysis, so many surgeons and therapists, because of the surgeons, Say, we want you to start moving right away. We want you to just get this thing going so it doesn't get stuck. Boy, that flies in the sense of wound healing, totally. Because if they move right away after a tenolysis, it bleeds in there. All that blood turns to clot. Guess what clot turns to? Scar. Why did you do the tenolysis? To get rid of the scar. Doesn't make any sense at all. If you take away all the blood supply to a tendon, which you do with tenolysis, and you take away all the strength of the tendon, which you did, because you took all the scar around it. And if you push it real hard, you get two awful things happen. One, it ruptures, because the tendon is now wussy. It's just as weak as a freshly repaired tendon. And two, you're going to fill it with scar again. So after tenolysis, I'm totally convinced that we ought to treat those tendons just like a freshly repaired flexor tendon, up and quiet, for two to three days till you're off all painkillers, let the bleeding stop, let the swelling come down, let the work of flexion come down, let the friction come down, let the patient know what hurts because he's off painkillers and then just don't do the stuff that hurts. Just keep it moving a little bit so it doesn't get stuck. And then you can gradually get stronger. Sorry, that was a really long answer. <laughs> <laughs> that is totally okay. I is great information. I never really looked at it that way as far as just learning to listen to the body. I know pain control in my area has been huge with narcotics. People just getting addicted to narcotics and it's nice to go back to see, you know, hey, we don't really need to manage these with all those heavy pain medications. So then kind of leading into this, I know I'm going to throw this out there out of nowhere. 
this pencil test. So what is this pencil test that you speak of? And how can we utilize that for our own clinical practice and clinical decision-making as far as extensors, flexor tendons, or just general hand pain? Yeah, thanks for that. And it actually segues perfectly into pain-guided healing. We didn't spend 2 billion years evolving pain because it's bad for us. It's nature's only way for our bodies to say to us, hey, would you quit that? I'm trying to heal in here and you're screwing it up. Stop that. And so when people come in with hand pain, which they do all the time, and surgeons look at an x-ray and they examine the hand and they go, look, there's nothing I can do here with surgery. I'm sending you to therapy. Well, that's not necessarily helpful for the therapist and it's not necessarily helpful for the patient either. But a lot of hand pains, we don't know why they're there. And we're never going to find out. We can fantasize and we can theorize and, oh, yeah, you got an intrinsic muscle tear and you got this and you got that. But do we really know? I don't know. I don't. (laughs) So uh, one thing I do know is whether people have pain or not. So if they come in and they have pain in a finger or pain in a hand, and I can't be sure what it is. And even if I know what it is, okay, I know it's an intrinsic tear. I can tell just by examining the patient. That's nice. But how are you going to solve the problem? And in my view, the pencil test is a great way to solve the problem. So let's say the pain happens when the patient flexes her long finger. That's what hurts, flexing the long finger. So I say, okay, fine. We're going to try the pencil test. And it's just like going to the eye doctor where they switch glasses and they go, do you see better with these glasses or these glasses? So first you put the pencil in a relatively extended position at the MP joint by putting the pencil under the long finger and over the other fingers. And what that does is it keeps the MP joint of the sore finger relatively extended. And I say, okay, I want you to do exactly what I do. And I sit in front of them and I have my hands up with a pencil in my finger, just like they have in theirs. And I get them to move both hands up and down. And I say, now, does that hurt more or less than without the pencil? And then I take the pencil away and I say, okay, keep doing it. And most people will have a preference, not always. And if they don't have a preference, eh, you've lost nothing, no big deal. But if they go, actually, you know what? That really hurts more than when I don't have the pencil there. And I say, okay, fine. Now we're going to try it the other way. And this time I put the pencil over top of the long finger and under the other fingers. So the MP joint is relatively flexed. And I move my both hands and I say, do exactly what I'm doing. And I say, now, does that hurt more with or without the pencil? And I get them to flex and extend five or 10 times. And then I take the pencil away and I get them to extend five or 10 times. And if patients really have a preference to one position or the other, frequently, here's what happens. Let's say I put them in a relatively flexed position. Here's what happens. They keep moving it and their eyes get wide and they go, wow, that doesn't hurt at all. And I go, great. I want you to just keep doing that. You just keep doing that. And you know what? They don't stop. They can't stand it. They come to see you because they got pain and you just put a bloody pencil there (laughs) and all of a sudden their pain is done. So they won't stop moving. And those are the patients that you will win with. 
if they're kind of, well, I don't know, you know, not really, then I'm not sure I'd even bother to build them a relative motion orthosis. But if they look at you and go, wow, hey, that's great. Like that doesn't hurt at all. And they just keep moving it. And you keep talking to them while they're moving. And I say to them, okay, look, here's what I think is happening. I'm not totally sure why you have your pain there, but I know one thing. If the pain is better right now in this position, then what that pencil is doing is it's rebalancing your forces in your hand and finger in such a way that the body can heal. Because when you're doing something that hurts, what your body's saying to you is, would you quit that? I'm trying to heal in here and you're screwing it up. Stop that. (laughs) And so if you're able to use your hand and it doesn't hurt, then you have rebalanced the forces in such a way that if you keep using your hand in this way, your body can heal. And look, my partner's a hand surgeon and he was able to work with a relative motion flexion splint for an interosseous tear. It totally took his pain away and he just scrubbed with it. He double gloved. And I mean, you can do most things with relative motion flexion or extension splints. And sometimes it's not what I expect at all. I think, oh yeah, this is an intrinsic tear. It's going to get better with a relative motion flexion orthosis. Eh, wrong. And <laughs> You know, it it works better in the extended position. And it's not my preconceived notions that matter. What matters is, are we alleviating the pain? And I can tell you that using this approach, that we have solved hand pain problems in hundreds of patients now. And not just mine, but lots of other people write to me and go, hey, you know what? That crazy pencil thing works. And people can Google it. You just Google the Lond pencil test or Fluelling. Lisa Fluelling is our hand therapist who uh, wrote the paper. And she's got lots of good videos in there about patients. Look, it's a simple kind of a, I don't totally understand how it works thing. But I do know that rebalancing the forces so that the body can heal works. And if you avoid doing... I mean, sometimes you have to do stuff that hurts, like later on in therapy, sometimes you just got to push it. Okay, suck it up and go if you're stiff. But in the acute stages of hand injury, not so much. And in these tricky balance things, eh, not so much. And drugs, absolutely not. Absolutely useless. Just going to make it worse. And one of the things I do when patients come in loaded on drugs, one of the first things I do is I say, look, how are those drugs working for you? Terrible. They don't work at all. It still hurts. And I go, you know what? You've been taking those drugs now for six months. I'll bet any money that if you stop, now if it's narcotics, they got a wean, right? Gabapentin and all that other foolish stuff. (laughs) They got a wean. But I promise you that if you stop all that stuff, you will be no more sore than you are right now on the drugs. The difference being is that at least you're going to know what really hurts. Right now, your brain's all kind of messed up with this stuff, and you're better off without it. And sure enough, and I've had, look, I've had a lot of patients come in on a lot of drugs, and they come back off the drugs, and they go, you know, you were right. I'm still sore, but it's no worse. And in fact, a lot of times, it gets better because now they know how to listen to their body, and they get in tune with that. I think people like... The idea of listening to their body, it appeals to our, I don't know, instinctive self, maybe. So 
basically going back to just really listening to the patient and then teaching the patient to listen to their own pain. Now, a question with the orthosis. So you said sometimes you're not sure you think you want to put them in a flexion orthosis, but then the extension orthosis works. So again, that reflects back to listening to the patient and just what they're experiencing versus maybe what your mind might be thinking is going on. Yeah, absolutely. They know what they feel. And you know, the other thing too, is that you're totally empowering. People need to be empowered. I mean, they feel like a slave to this issue that they're seeking help for. And you're probably the fifth or sixth person that they're, you know, see. And then you empower them and you say, you know what, it's not all in your head. It really hurts. And maybe we can help you. Now, you can't always. The pencil test doesn't always work. But hey, a lot of times it does. And when it happens, patients love the therapists, okay? They do. They go, oh my <laughs> gosh, that woman or that guy is like amazing. Yeah. Well, I think you make a good point. Like, I think it helps just creating some buy-in. And like you mentioned, it helps us too, because they come to us, or even if we sit down and do the pencil test with them and show them, hey, this is, let's talk through this, as opposed to people always want they want an answer. They want the reason why this is hurting. But if you can talk through, okay, let me show you this. Let's see if this works. And then you can say, hey, I'm going to build you something that you're going to wear that's going to mimic this. So you aren't walking around with a pencil in your hand. And I think that <laughs> just <laughs> improves, you know, gets some buy-in from the patients too. And what I tell them is I say, look, I'd like you to meet my hand therapist. And a lot of times this happens at the clinic and they're there. Sometimes it happens in my office and I take them to the clinic and I introduce them to the therapist. And I say, look, Lisa can build you a splint and just try it for a month. I mean, the pencil work, right? Try to wear it most of the time. I mean, you can take it off to get in the shower and stuff. But the more time you're wearing it, the more time your body has to heal whatever it is that it's trying to heal and it's trying to tell you to give me a break. Yeah, no, that's great. I know your therapists, I'm sure appreciate you and you building up they <laughs> building up them so that their patients, when they come to them and they are making that orthosis, that you're setting them up for success too. I'd like, if you don't mind, I'd just like to take this opportunity to slide into early protected movement for K-wired fingers because it's right along the same line. So the biggest problem with finger fractures is not that they heal, they all bloody heal. That's not the problem. The biggest problem we have with them is that they get stiff. I mean, occasionally they get crooked. Okay, hey, surgeons like fixing that, that's fun. But the biggest problem that we all have is that they all get stiff, or not all, the ones we see <laughs> get stiff. And you know they get extensor lag or they can't flex. It's one or the other. And one of the things that I like to tell surgeons, surgical trainees who are more malleable than sometimes older surgeons, although it's interesting, older surgeons have moved away from plates and screws and fingers a lot. There's a lot of really good older surgeons, guys like Peter Stern, who started plates and screws and fingers, and now whenever he can, he uses K-wires. Because they're less invasive, you're creating less wound so your body has less wound to heal and you're creating less callus that everything gets stuck on because you're not dissecting all those spaces and 
creating blood under periosteum that makes callus. And so K-wires really, whenever you can, are a better way to deal with finger fractures. Because even though they're not rigid, they're rigid enough that the bones can heal in a good position. And this concept actually started for me with mandibles, mandible fractures, because uh, jaw fractures, because I'm a plastic surgeon, I'm not an orthopedic surgeon, so I do jaw fractures too. And this concept of rigid fixation versus functionally stable fixation, you don't need rigid fixation in jaw fractures. You need functionally stable fixation. What that means is enough stability that the teeth are still going to be able to glide in a little bit so that your bite isn't off. I mean, we've all had a filling where they put in too much stuff and your bite is off and it drives you crazy. (laughs) Can you imagine if all your teeth are off because the fracture is off just a little bit? It's awful. It drives those patients insane. So if you've got just a little play in your stability, then it's functionally stable. It's stable enough that it's going to heal, but it's going to let your teeth glide into that proper position. So that concept is also extremely useful in finger fractures. You don't need rigid fixation. Rigid fixation has led a little bit to a little rigid thinking. You don't need it. And you can do early protected movement with functionally stable fixation. In other words, just K-wires in your fingers. And it's not going to take your fracture out of place. And you're not going to get K-wire infections if you follow pain-guided healing. We've been doing that for years, okay? Like a long time, and it works. I promise you it works. So what we do and what any surgeon can do is put in their K-wires. Now, it's better if they're awake because then the surgeon can test full flexion, full extension, and look at it on the fluoro and see if their fracture is moving out of place. And if it is, they can add another K-wire. Or if their K-wire is messing up the intrinsics and not letting things move, then they can replace the K-wire and get it so that it's right. It's just like the flexor tendon repairs wide awake. Once you can do a full fist flexion and extension with a K-wire finger and your fracture is not coming apart, then you know if you can do full fist flexion and extension and your fracture doesn't come apart at surgery... You know that three to five days later, after the swelling is down, after the patient is off painkillers, after the work of flexion is gone and all that, they know what hurts because they're off all painkillers and they come in. And I tell them this during the surgery. I say, look, by the time you come in, I want you off everything. And they are because they follow the rules. Up like a sleeping baby, don't disturb it, no walking around with their hand dangling down and all that. And so they come in and then we know that they can do up to half a fist, half a fist. I only say that because it's easy for people to get, like they don't get 45 degrees, and, but they get, look, you, you just did a full fist and your fracture didn't come apart. You see that? So when your therapist on Monday asks you to move up to half a fist, you know, you're not going to come apart. It's only half the movement. And so if they do that, and you can move it as long as it doesn't hurt. And I, I show them practically what 15 to 30 degrees looks like at the DIP movement. And I say, that's all you need. You just need enough movement so it doesn't get stuck. That's all you need. And I say the same thing to my therapist. You just don't want it to get stuck. 
And if it doesn't get stuck, then you're going to have much less trouble with stiffness. And I also remind the therapists that collagen formation doesn't start until day three. Patients are not going to make scar until day three. Same for the tenolysis. You don't have to move it right away. They're going to make a fibrin clot. Who cares? It's not scar. So you've got time before things start to get stuck. So the other thing that surgeons, surgeons are afraid of two things. And this is assuming we're not talking about unstable, complicated PIP and triarticular fractures, because those are another kettle of fish. I want them to get a little bit sticky before I start moving. I'm talking about your transverse fracture, base of proximal phalanx with dorsal tilt, <laughs> that they K-wire. Okay, the, your common garden variety fracture that they K-wire. Those are the ones that really benefit from early protected movement with pain-guided healing. The surgeons are worried about two things. They're worried about losing their beautiful, sexy reduction. <laughs> They're a lot more worried about losing their bloody reduction than they are worried about the stiff finger. But when they grow up, they're more worried about this <laughs> than they are about losing their reduction. Because you can fix the reduction. You can re-reduce it. A proximal phalanx transverse fracture is nothing to put another KYR in later. I mean, it's not a big deal. Compared to a flexor tendon repair rupture, it's nothing. And yet they're willing to move those because, by George, they've been taught that if you don't move those, <laughs> they're going to get a stiff finger. But it's the same bloody problem with a fracture. So they're worried about losing their reduction. You got to tell them to lighten up. It's not that big a deal. And the second thing they're worried about is K-wire infections. And that's legit because if K-wires are sticking out and there's too much movement, then the fat that's underneath the skin goes every time they're moving and the fat dies that's around the K-wire. The hole in the skin is a highway for germs to get in and eat the dead fat. And so you do get infections around a K-wire, but the body is really, really clever about this stuff. If the patient follows pain-guided healing, they don't move so much that they're going to get K-wire infections, but they move enough that they're not going to get stiff. And they don't get K-wire infections if they don't do stuff that hurts. So it's kind of, you got to have a little bit of everything in there for it to work. But if it's like baking a cake, you know, I mean, if you can either bake a half-assed cake that's hard as rock, but if you want to bake a good cake, this is how you do it, I think. Yeah, it seems like there's this dance between remembering tissue healing, remembering those phases of healing, and then this dance of moving enough that they don't get stiff, but not moving too much to create a problem. So we're just kind of doing this dance with these patients and whatever, like you said, whether it's a tendon healing after a flexor tendon repair or a fracture. And I think that all therapists should gently push. I mean, you can't, you got to be polite about these things. And there are some surgeons that you can't, <laughs> you can't tell them anything. I've met lots of them. <laughs> <laughs> but if they're malleable and forward thinking and think in terms of wound healing and think in terms of the real post-op result is not a picture of a nice x-ray, but a post-op result is a video of a patient with full fist flexion and extension, then 
if you say to them, look, you got a pretty stable fracture there, send it to me and let me move it early. And then we're not going to get into the stiff and tell them, look, I'll, we'll make sure that they're not going to get into trouble. And obviously you're not going to do it with a 16 year old skateboarding Yahoo. (laughs) Same thing as flexor tendon repairs. You got to pick your patients. You're not going to do this to the drug addict or somebody's addicted to narcotics and on the stuff all the time and has no idea what hurts, which a lot of people are. Those are not the people to start up. So I have a question. So if you have, for example, somebody who has very heightened pain and it may not all be physical pain, how do you get them to move past that point of that balance between pain that's going to cause further damage or is the pain, I don't want to ever insinuate people have pain, it's in their head. Because it's not. It's true to them and you have to be respectful of that. But how can you like gently move them past that? That's a good question. Some people, you're talking about the person who kind of everything hurts. Those people don't usually get into trouble. They don't usually push it too hard. Their problem with them is they don't push it hard enough. And those patients, they might not be the right people to start with. This is like anything else. You've got to kind of pick your right people to start with. And, and then once you get comfortable, I look at my therapist and we go, nah, not with this one. <laughs> <laughs> they say to me, no, no. Yeah, it's not working. <laughs> Whatever works, you know. But every once in a while, somebody falls through the cracks. We had one last year. I don't know why we missed them. Maybe COVID and all this stuff. Anyway, he didn't come in for early protected movement. And I'll tell you, it was like the old, old days. You know, it was like, oh, my God, he's so stiff. <laughs> and my therapists are going, Don, this is what it's like in the rest of the world. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> he's going to be all right. You know, we used to do this all the time. And I go, okay. And sure enough, he was okay. It's just that I, oh, And the other thing that I think is really important is for the extensor legs after fractures, the relative motion flexion orthosis is really helpful. And I know you guys know that because they exercise while they're living and it drives that PIP extension force to the PIP joint. It takes it away from the MP joint, especially in the little finger that tends to hyperextend the MP joint. For extensor leg, I really like relative motion flexion orthoses. Yeah, I feel like that's something that's like been the answer to a lot of things. Or if I reach out to a mentor and I've racked my brain about everything, it's, hey, have you tried a relative motion orthosis? And it's like, duh, like, yes, that should have been something (laughs) I implemented. And so I feel like that's definitely changed my practice over the last couple of years. Yeah. The other place that I'm finding that especially helpful is the opposite of that, where you have a flexor leg after a flexor tendon repair. So you do a flexor tendon repair, it's fine. Early movement is great. Patient comes back at three or four weeks or five weeks and they're stuck now and you can't move the DIP. And so we have ultrasound in our clinic now. And so we ultrasound the tendon, the tendon's fine. You can even see the suture. You can see the tendon is nicely together. It's just bloody stuck. So with those, if you put them in a relative motion extension orthosis and just let them go, well, 
don't let them lift heavy stuff. They're going to lift tendon, <laughs> but you know, let them move. That really drives profundus and superficialis separately, and it helps to get DIP out of scar. And I've had a lot of younger surgeons write to me and say, should I do a tenolysis here? Because my flexor tendon is stuck. I say, well, does your ultrasound show that the tendon is together? Yes, it's together. Try a relative motion extension orthosis first. And a lot of them will get their DIP out of scar with that. Wow. Definitely some food for thought. I'm thinking of many patients in my head that I'm like, oh, maybe I should try that with them. <laughs> if you talk to guys like Jin Bo Tang, he almost never does tenolysis in his practice. And either do I. When I do one, I have to film it because, oh my God, I'm doing a tenolysis. <laughs> I just, I don't do very many. Because with the orthoses, but we got great hand therapists here, let's face it. And you guys are great hand therapists, but a lot of surgeons don't even have a hand therapist. There's a lot of countries that don't even have hand therapy, period. You guys spoil us. You make us look good. <laughs> no, we try. <laughs> you make us look better than we should. <laughs> it's definitely a collaboration. Absolutely. And communication between the surgeon and the hand therapist is so important. I just found in my own practice, it's definitely something that I encourage to have that open communication. The other thing I think we we're going to just touch on is boutonniere just a little bit. Yeah, sure. Sure. I was trying to find a lead way into that, but <laughs> yeah, no, that's okay. Because I think that is really worth talking about just a little bit. And Wendell Merritt is the guy who introduced me to the whole relative motion concept. And first he did it for extensor tendon repair. And that totally changed my practice. And it's been awesome. And that was a long time ago. I mean, we're pushing 20 years now that he taught me that. And then I met him again later at a meeting. And he started talking to me about boutonnieres and relative motion flexion orthosis, keeping the MP flexed. And I love Wendell to death, but I couldn't wrap my head around that one for quite a while. And I had my doubts, but you know, he was totally right about that. And the one thing that in addition to seeing it work, which seeing is believing, I mean, any therapist or any surgeon who's used a relative motion flexion orthosis for a boutonniere and had a great result where before their results used to kind of be mediocre or suck. Because the problem that I had, and I'm sure lots of other people have, is that we would put them in the PIP extension spoon for eight weeks because six weeks never did it. So we'd put them in for eight weeks and they'd look great or close to great. And then they'd come back a month later with their boutonniere back. And it was like, oh, geez, we just did all that. I can't remember who said it, but if the definition of insanity is repeating the same thing and hoping you're going to get a different result. So adding the relative motion flexion orthosis after you get with serial casting, so get your collateral ligaments up, you might get them only as high as minus 15 or minus 20. You'd rather do better, but if that's all you get, that's all you get. So you do your serial casting, get your PIP joint out for your boutonniere. And then you really have to add the relative motion flexion orthosis. And what really made me a total believer was when I saw how it works in the cadaver. And there's a video 
that I'm linking to all of you. It's part of a talk that I gave a couple of months ago. It's the cadaver video where I create a rip-roaring boutonniere in a finger. And I actually did this in Philadelphia with Wendell Merritt. He and I both did this at the Philadelphia hand course. We created a boutonniere and a cadaver and then put the cadaver in a relative motion flexion orthosis position. And the boutonniere goes away. And you're pulling on the extensors. You got a terrible boutonniere. You flex that MP joint and bingo, the PIP gets straight. And it's all about flexing the MP joint. You gotta flex the MP joint if you want the PIP joint to go straight, especially in the fifth finger where you get hyperextension of the MP joint. That's why we have such a hard time in the fifth finger with boutonnieres and with trends and all this kind of stuff. If you get that MP down, the PIP can come out. So in this video that is available for all of you to see where I did it again on my own at another Philadelphia meeting and I got someone to film it, I create a big boutonniere in a finger and pull on the extensor tenon. And it looks like a classic boutonniere. In fact, it kind of snapping up. And then when I put a freer elevator in to keep the MP joint down, just like a relative motion flexion orthosis would do, the PIP goes totally straight. And it's all about the extensor mechanism, the lateral slip of the long extensor that goes into the lateral band. When your MP is flexed, that sucker gets tight and it pulls the lateral bands up. And it really shows it nicely in that video. And so now that the lateral bands are up, because when the MP is flexed, the lateral slip of the long extensors pull the lateral bands up and dorsal to the axis of the PIP joint. You can see that that whole extensor mass up there, even though the central slip is ruptured or cut, it doesn't matter. Because once you get that whole mass up there, you're going to get scar over the PIP joint, just like you get scar in a mallet. A boutonniere is exactly the same thing as a bloody mallet. So in a mallet, you rip the extensor out of the bone and it never goes back there. But we all know and we believe that if you splint that properly for a long time, that you're going to fix the mallet. And we've all seen that a hundred times. It's exactly the same thing for a boutonniere. If you can keep that PIP, those lateral bands dorsal to the axis of the PIP joint by keeping the MP joint flexed, then all of that stuff, the central slip is never going to touch, just like the mallet extensor is never going to touch the bone again. It doesn't have to. You just need enough scar on top of that whole extensor mechanism that it's going to stop it from boutonnieren in the future. That's what you need. And it was kind of my aha moment as I looked at the cadaver. It was like, this is the same bloody thing as a mallet. It's not that complicated. <laughs> <laughs> it just seems to not work, but it does work. That's a great analogy or comparing it to a mallet. And if you look at the video, you get it. You can say, oh, okay, that's the stuff that all heals together and forms a massive scar over the PIP extensor mechanism. And the central slip never comes back and the triangular ligament never comes back. And that stuff is all toast, but you get enough scar up there that it holds it together. So the knuckle can't pop through the lateral bands anymore. Yeah, it makes it work. The last thing we were going to talk about, if we still have time, is 
full fist place and hold. Yes. Yeah. Versus true active movement after yeah. flexion and repair. Yeah. And I really want to thank Nancy Cannon because she and the Indianapolis group are the ones that brought full fist place and hold out into the world. And I think that the concept is a good one, but Nancy has just come out with a new Indianapolis handbook. I don't know if you've seen it or not. Yes, I have. <laughs> it's fantastic. It is fantastic. And maybe you're in it. I don't know. But she was kind enough to let our therapists write a piece in it, Amanda Higgins and Lisa Flewelling, about true active movement. So here's the thing about true active movement versus full fist place and hold. First of all, you don't need to make a full fist because just like in everything else, you just need to keep it moving so it doesn't get stuck. So you only need a half a fist of tendon glide so that it doesn't get stuck. You don't need a full fist. And Jin Botang and his studies of work of flexion and friction and all that stuff show that the greatest work of flexion, the greatest friction, and therefore the greatest rupture risk after flexor tendon repair is in the second half of a full fist. A, you don't need it. B, it's unnecessarily risky to do the second half of a full fist. The other thing is that wide awake flexor tendon repair, and many of you have seen videos and the links are there on open access if you haven't seen them about full fist buckle and jerk. If you passively flex a finger during surgery after you've repaired the tendon and then you get the patient to, okay, I want you to hold it there now. And you simulate full fist place and hold. In the second half of the fist, in the last half of the fist, frequently you're passively flexing that finger and you're assuming that that tendon is gliding, but it's not, it's not gliding. And then when the patient holds it, it jerks down. And to me, jerking is a great way to rip tendons and rip ligaments and on the other hand, if you just get them to flex up to half a fist, that's ridiculously safe, especially if they have done a full fist flexion and extension during wide awake flexor tendon repair, and there's no gap. And more and more Americans are moving to wide awake flexor tendon repair. The last census that I looked at, looking at that, and, and this is like a couple of years ago already, is 20%. 20% of American hand surgeons are doing wide awake flexor tendon repair. That's huge because it's brand new. And for a lot of people, moving into wide awake surgery is a big political problem because a lot of them can't work without their anesthetists. Uh, their hospital's not set up for it. They get all this pushback. And it's not pushback about the technique. They love the technique. It's my hospital won't let me do it. Or my anesthetist won't let me do it or whatever. And the fact that in spite of that, 20% of them are now doing it tells you a lot. It tells you that they're willing to overcome the hurdles so that they can see the patient actively moving at the end and make sure that there's no gap. So there's not going to be a rupture. I mean, all these ruptures that therapists took the blame for, like you shouldn't do that. You know, it's not your fault of patient ruptures. It's the surgeon's fault that he didn't test the repair with active movement during the surgery. Or the patient did something crazy, which we all see. But if the repair has been properly tested, you guys are not going to be rupturing tendons. 
But even more importantly than avoiding rupture, which is 7%, that's very important, but also to make sure that they've properly vented their A2 and their A4 pulleys. A lot of surgeons still look at the A2 pulley as religion. It's like blasphemy to cut that thing. I got a beautiful video of a complete venting of A1 and A2 pulley where a guy has no clinically significant bowstringing at the end of the case and no clinically significant bowstringing with a full range of motion at 12 weeks post-op. And there is a beautiful Japanese paper written in 2016 with 40 cases of A2 pulley venting, 33 partial A2s, seven complete A2s, and not one case of clinically significant bowstringing. And so North American surgeons have to get over this religion of A2, A4, like it's bad religion. It is not good because it generates a lot of these blasted, unnecessary tenolyses. The repair doesn't fit underneath the A2 and the A4 pulley. That's the bottom line. A good solid repair doesn't fit. So you got to cut them. And it's okay if you cut them because even though you may get a little bit of bowstringing, bowstringing is not cancer. It never killed one patient that I've ever met. And a little bit of bowstringing is nowhere near as bad as a totally stiff, bloody finger that's had its second tenolysis and still isn't bloody moving. And they cut the pulley when they did the tenolysis. Like, why didn't you cut it the first time? And you wouldn't have to do the tenolysis. So they've got to do the wide awake repairs to avoid unnecessary rupture and to make sure that they have vented enough pulley. And they don't just go in and whack them all out. They just incrementally vent what they need to so that they get a full range on the table. And almost every surgeon who has tried that has never gone back. And they write to me all the time and they go, oh man, this is so good. I'm getting, the results are so much better than what I used to do. And so are mine. My results used to suck. When I bowed to the altar of the A2 and A4 pulley, oh my God. (laughs) It was not good. Even before then, when I did them asleep, I feel bad for all those people. I really do. But anyway, look, at least I figured it out finally. So I'm doing it right now. As a surgeon or as a therapist, you're never too old to start doing the right thing. (laughs) Absolutely. And we thank you for figuring that out. (laughs) Well, I didn't figure it out by myself. That's for sure. You know, (laughs) When I was a medical student at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario in 1975, so just yesterday, (laughs) the plastic surgeon, hand surgeon there did wide awake flexor tendon repair with lidocaine and epinephrine in the emergency department. And I saw this as a medical student. I'm looking at him going, wait a minute. I thought we're not supposed to use adrenaline in the finger. He says, oh, that's pilot crap. Wow. So I didn't invent this stuff. (laughs) I just helped popularize what good surgeons before me taught me. I think we all could say that about our practices and what we've learned from the people that have come before us, for sure. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, I guess that would be the end. Thank you so much for joining us. And we really, really appreciate you taking the time out of your day and busy schedule. But thanks again. My great pleasure to talk to you, ladies. You've been listening to Hands in Motion, brought to you by the American Society of Hand Therapists. To learn more about ASHT and to subscribe to the show, please visit ASHT.org. 
We'll see you next time on the Hands in Motion podcast. Hands in Motion.